That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. But the crowd forgot one thing is monsters, John. Monsters from the id. There you go again, always blaming me for everything. Oh, switch off! Exterminate! It's a trap! This looks extraordinarily bad. Commencing countdown. T minus five, four. Three, two, one. Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanny Show. Interview with Ann Leckie to misquote the classic green pineapple, Breck here now. <laughs> I'm Sean. I'm Paul. I'm Julia. And our special guest is the multiple award winning Ann Leckie. Yay! Yay! Hello. So welcome back for your second interview. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. Anytime. So you have a new book, which we're going to have to talk about, um, but I wanted to start off actually by not talking specific about the book in terms of the stuff in the magic book, uh, but I wanted to talk about the fact that now this is your second novel, uh, and you have a little bit of a different position than most uh, sequel writers have, which is that your book was pretty much like loved by everybody in the universe. Uh, on day one. Uh, so I was curious how you kind of prepared yourself as you got closer and closer to publication date for what was going to be the reception of this novel. Of the second? Uh, mostly yeah. I uh, I planned uh, a, an escape route to under my bed. <laughs> um, I mean, on the one hand, obviously the reception of the first novel was almost completely a writer's fantasy, right? It was unreal. Uh there were almost no box was unticked from the things that like when you're like drunk or completely fantasizing, just completely out of control. Like this is going to be the glorious future of my writing. And there it all was on the first novel. And that should have been wonderful, which it was wonderful. But then it's like no pressure for book number two, right? <laughs> like n the whole world is not watching to see whether or not you can do it again or whether or not it was just dumb luck. Right. So, uh, so it was kind of scary, actually. So, do you read reviews? Because I know authors are split on this. Authors are split on it. I know that I shouldn't read reviews. Um, I read fewer than I used to. When the first book came out, I read all kinds of reviews. I would, you know, look all the time for reviews. I couldn't help myself. Um, I don't read as much now, uh, but I still do read some, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I can't imagine being in that position with book number two coming out and, and it being a sequel and part of a series and having everyone love book one and then being like, okay, what's going to happen now? Because of course the thing with sequels and especially the thing with trilogies is that people are always expecting book number two to have middle book syndrome. Yes. Yes. You have to know that ahead of time because you, I'm sure, are a voracious reader of trilogies. So what did you do when you were writing this to try to combat it? Well, I'll, I'll be honest. I know about middle book syndrome, but to some extent, I'm not sure 100% what people mean when they say it. Because very often, uh, book twos are my favorites in my favorite trilogies. 
Um, and so that actually just made it scarier because I was like, oh, it just needs to be as awesome as the second foreigner book. Right. Um, and, but really what I did was, uh, just sat down and said, I'm just going to write this book. And I didn't want it to be the same exact kind of book. I didn't want to rewrite the same book. And I said, I just have to let it be what it's going to be and make it as good as I can and try not to worry too much about, uh, what people are expecting or, you know, who, how that's going to come out. And so that was basically what I did. So Paul, you've had a tagline that was kind of interesting and you said you would clarify it in a question. I will clarify it in the question. I think this, that time has come. This, this, this will, this will get in more into the meat of the book. Um, what I, I was, I was particularly uh, taking with your depiction of Athok, Athok, how you pronounce, I don't know how Athok? you pronounce Athlete, thank you, Station. It, remi- it reminded me of a classic Infocom text adventure game called Station Fall. And I was curious, and I'm, I'm, I'm 99.9% confident that you weren't inspired by Station Fall in the design of the station, especially with its, its, um, stri- its, its section, which is not exactly up to code. I was curious as to where the uh, where your inspirations for the station came from, especially the section which is not exactly up to code, the which, which includes the underguard and this whole, un, this whole um, like brown sector to use a to use a to use a Babylon Five reference that you have attached to the rest of the main station. I was just curious where you came up with the design of the station, what inspired, what inspirations and in previous stations and literature were your inspirations in designing this wonderful place. Um. Well. That's an interesting question. Uh, I actually, that is an Infocom game that I'm not familiar with. I have played some Infocom games, but I don't know that one. Um, most of my research that I did in designing the station actually centered around the garden. Uh, I did a whole lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, visits to the, the botanical gardens here in St. Louis. One of those, oh, isn't that terrible? I, it's a horrible thing. It's a terrible job. Somebody's got to do it. I have to visit the botanical garden every week, right? It's research, so I have to force myself. Um, and so that was a lot of fun. I just kind of, uh, I sat down and I said, well, here's this station. Things can't be perfect. Where are the places that it's not going to be perfect and why? And so it wasn't that I was necessarily modeling it on a particular station. Although obviously, I mean, I've read science fiction for a very long time. Mm-hmm. So all, all of the space stations and all of the stories that I've read are sort of in the back of my mind. Right. Um, but I didn't actually sit down and like map out the station, which maybe I should have actually, it might've been helpful, but I, I was, I was wondering if you had a secret map of the station floating, floating around somewhere. It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining it like an Infocom sort of map. It's like you go west, west to here and south to here. And then you have then you have this ungainly section and the mushrooms are grown here underneath the station underneath the garden. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't make a map. I probably should have actually, but I didn't. I, I, I just I just think in terms of maps and locations and whatnot. But yeah. Station Fall was the sequel to Planetfall. Did you play Planetfall? No, I played uh a little bit of Hitchhiker's Guide. I tried to play Bureaucracy and didn't get very far. Uh I played Trinity. Trinity's um, excellent. What uh, I'm trying to think, probably another one, but those were the Infocom games that I yeah. played. I, I played a large swath of, swath of them, swath of them. I mean, from Zork to Enchanter, Suspended, Trinity. I tried Bureaucracy, didn't like it. Hitchhiker's Guide to Galaxy. I needed the Invisi clues to get the damn Babelfish. Mm-hmm. 
And then yeah, was, that was complicated, wasn't it? You have to stand, pile up all these things. That, yeah. In right order. Planet, Planetfall, for, for those listeners who are not familiar with it, was, is a space adventure Infocom game where you crash land on an alien planet that was uh, settled by the first empire. You're in now in the second empire. And there's a robot that you find and activate that goes around with you named Floyd. And every, every, you can send him off to do tasks. And every time he comes back to you, he's delighted to see you. He's like a puppy that way. He says, Floyd here now. Ah. And the sequel station full has you and Floyd investigate a mystery where the station that's gone unusually silent and you have the main parts of the station engineering and medical and whatnot. And then you have this ungainly part that's attached to the station of, of, of basically this under under city that's not supposed to be there. It's not up to code. And part of the trick of the game is trying to find a way into there because finding the mystery of what happened to the station involves going into that dark and secret and dank area. And I, I'm, when, when, uh, when you depicted the station, I immediately thought back to station walls. Like, Oh God, it's, she couldn't have, took them from that no uh -uh. that sounds like a lot of fun though it it was a lot of fun and i don't want to give what way bad things happen to floyd and you've been investing him through two games and it's kind of sad and but yeah i had lots of great times with the infocom games and your book inadvertently and strangely brought me back to them so thank you for that (laughs) you're very welcome Sean? So, uh, all right. So, I'm gonna I'm gonna take us away from uh, geeking out too much uh, because I I can't participate because I never played any of these games. Oh, I was gonna say like you're gonna take us away from geeking out too much because that would be a terrible thing for the Skiffy and Fanti show to do. Look, we don't geek out on this show. No, well, Ever. I mean, who likes geeks, right? Right. Right. <laughs> Not us. Not us. Those things. They're just. They're just weird. Just no. Just don't do it. <laughs> It's not true. So you were going to bring us back on topic, though, right? Uh, well, I, I wanted to talk about uh, kind of go back to maybe more of the basics of the book, because uh, this takes place after uh, fairly close after the, the previous novel. So we're dealing with a very different empire situation. And in this case, one of the I think the big things that has happened is the the uh, the banning of uh, ancillaries. Those are officially banned, although there are ancillaries in some of the. Regions that haven't heard the news yet, as it were. Well, yeah, um, making ancillary, making new ancillaries is banned, or make, excuse me, yeah, yeah. It, the, the folks who are already in stock, of course, there's no hope for them. But yeah, right. So, uh, so one of the interesting things that that we have here is, as we know from the previous novel, that Breck was an ancillary, and now she's been put in a or in a position where she's essentially the captain of a ship. But is no longer in a position of the ancillary, and there, and throughout the novel, I think that you you sort of explore, maybe not explicitly, but it certainly seems that the conflict she has with now sort of having to be an, a normal person uh, and not an <laughs> ancillary, sort of hooked into the ship, and and the struggle she has, um, I think like the perfect example of that is the, the like I think the first chapter where she mentions you know that she it took her a while to learn how to not walk into walls while listening to what the ship was telling her mm-hmm. uh, because she's so used to sort of just being wired to have like the ship would just fo- use her motor functions and she could like get all this info uh but now she doesn't have that function so she's sort of trying to adapt and i was hoping you could talk a little bit about um the exploration you have here of of her transition from almost robotic humanoid to She's now having to be a person and yet at the same time struggling with that. Yeah, that was a lot of that. Um, I didn't start out saying I'm going to explore that. But, of course, that's going to come out 
when you're focusing on the character, right? Uh, because she is in a really different place than she was before. Um, she doesn't have that huge distributed network of brains to process huge amounts of information anymore, right? She's, she can only do it with the one brain. Um, but also, uh, it's gonna, on the one hand, it seems really horrifying, more than seems horrifying, right? To, uh, have your sort of identity, uh, destroyed and hooked up to a ship uh but at the same time when you're that kind of a being there are a lot of uh really cool things about that it's not worth the price i would imagine i wouldn't say oh it'd be a great thing to do um but i said boy there'd be a lot of things that you would miss about that uh you would really miss having so many different hands to do things you would really miss being able to scratch that place on your back that you couldn't reach right or to scratch your nose when both your hands are occupied or uh have all of those other minds around you uh hooked up and doing things and making you feel like you weren't completely just one little piece uh and so uh one of the things i was trying to focus on was uh breck trying to reconcile always having to be just a fragment of what she thought herself as, uh, and also always seeing what she could have, because of course, being captain of the ship, she can almost touch what she would have had before, but she can't not without completely losing her identity. And so that was, that was something that I definitely, as I worked, it became obvious that had to be, uh, very upfront in the story. Yeah, so uh, one of the things that it really reminded me of was Anya in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, who sort of starts out as a demon and then becomes human. And it, again, being a demon is not really the greatest thing ever, but it does come with tremendous power that when she's human, she doesn't have. And I kept kind of thinking, comparing and contrasting Breck's experiences, trying to be more like a normal person to Anya, trying to fit in with the human high school and college world. Uh, after she lost her demon powers. But I thought also that one of the really interesting things in uh, in the second book was the sort of contrast between Breck and, uh, is it Tisarwat? I'm very bad Tisarwat, at- yeah. Yes. So I wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit about that. That's, yeah. And, and I, that was another one. Very often when I write, I don't say, oh, I'll make a character who's a contrast, but I'll write and I'll go, oh, obviously my brain is producing this character who's a contrast. And it became clear that that is what's going on. Because, of course, Tisarwat is also an ancillary, but a different sort, right? Uh, terrible spoiler. Maybe I should have said spoiler beforehand. Um, but uh, she has a very different experience of it, right? Um, and didn't ever have the positive parts of being an ancillary where everybody was around you. Um, so yeah, yeah, that was, that was kind of interesting. She was a really interesting character. I didn't, when she turned up, I didn't know where she was going. Uh, but I was really glad she did turn up. Paul, you have a hand. Yeah. I actually was going to ask about Tissa Ward and, and how you had come up to, to develop her in relationship with the Empress and with Breck, but I'll, I'll go in a slightly different tr- direction and sl- slightly more textual. Um, although it wasn't a lot of the text, it was a poignant point of the text in the first in the first book, talking about pronouns and gender and moving away f- and uh, and playing with that. I noticed in the second book you kind of moved away from that and focused on other things, but you kind of had it in the background. Did you feel like you had established that and were wanting to go on for other things? And now that you basically were assuming readers for the first novel were really going to get that. And and, and as a more broadly, were you, 
Is, is this a second novel? Are you expecting readers to have read the first? Uh, I pretty much am expecting readers to have read the first, although I did try and sort of bring folks up to speed at the beginning. Um, if only for folks who hadn't read the book, the previous book for a year. Uh, but I suspect it would be difficult for folks who hadn't read the first book to really catch on to what was happening. Um, and with the pronouns, uh, to some extent, the pronoun situation disappears when you're dealing with a single language. Uh, one of the things that really brought the pronouns into high relief in the first book was the fact that Breck was speaking other languages and uh -huh. that some languages required it. And so that really made it noticeable. But when you move into a situation where you're almost always speaking Radchai, you almost never have that contrast to, to show that there's anything going on with the pronouns. And I thought about spending some time in the first chapter, like re-explaining that or, or bringing attention to it. And then I said, no, you know, people who have read the first book already know, uh, and I'll just sort of go right along and we'll just, you know, let, let the pronouns fall where they may, I guess. And it doesn't actually become an issue until almost the end of the book where, uh, where Breck is speaking Delsig, which does use gendered pronouns. And there's like one time where she gets corrected yeah. for using the wrong, the wrong gendered term. Um, and, uh, and so I, some of it was, yeah, some of it was I'd already focused on that really hard, and some of it was just the setting made it sort of not naturally come to the fore. I see Sean is shouting to to speak. Yeah, because this is related to uh, one of my questions, because, yeah, this book doesn't do, like, the first chapter in Ancillary Justice pretty much sets up the whole pronoun issue. Um, it's very explicit. Uh, and that first chapter is kind of a, a mind screw because <laughs> you're like, wait, wait, what's going on? So who is, who is which, what's, what's the genders? I don't understand what's, and then you finally it clicks. Um, but here you don't do that. Instead you explore gender and sexuality in some other unique ways. Um, I'll come to a different question after this one, uh, which it concerns voyeurism, uh, which I think we should. Ah. Uh, um, but the one I wanted to talk, which is related to what Paul was mentioning, is that when they, uh, we get to the ship or to the space station, uh, uh, above, uh, Athic, uh, you have a moment in which your characters are talking about this genitalia festival. Uh huh. <laughs> which... there, there's a big thing. Well, sorry. There, a... <laughs> right now, this very moment, there is a big thread on Twitter about genitalia carols that is totally cracking me up, but okay. <laughs> uh, Wait, can right. you give us some highlights? Yeah. Oh, well, it's, uh, somebody started commenting on it and then somebody else said, oh, you know, genitalia carols. And somebody said, oh, deck the halls with dangling scrota. And they said, oh, I'm going to be filking. Uh, and I said, well, you know, everyone's favorite, the carol of the balls, right? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So they, yeah, it, it was cracking me up. And then you mentioned it and I was like, oh, now I'm not going to be able to stop laughing. Well, now it's funny, uh, even though it's. Well, maybe it's kind of intended as a funny moment in the book. Uh, I mean, I guess you could certainly laugh at it. Uh, I, I think the thing I took away was uh, eye-searing orange penises. Uh, <laughs> because you do, you do describe some of the, the – and just so everybody realizes, they're not like real penises. They're like – they go to a shop and, and buy these sort of like, like icons or religious symbols that are penises. Mm -hmm. um, well, they decorate explicitly... with like Christmas lights, right? Like yeah. little plastic glowing – Yes. Penis-shaped lights, right? It is so bizarre. Yes. It is bizarre, but it's at the same like time, it's... sort of like bachelorette parties taken to an extreme. <laughs> <laughs> and it was actually meant to be funny, actually. 
Oh, okay. Well, then, good. I, I don't feel so bad laughing about the eye-searing orange penises, uh, because that was that line was kind of funny. Um, but this, this. So, in any case, to get to the question I wanted to ask, um, because you do explore this this gender sexuality uh, split, because I think the first thing that we when Breck shows up and she's like, "What's with the penises? Where are all of the other ones?" And there's this great story that's sort of told uh, about. Well, it might be a myth uh, of the first time that the uh, the Rajai show up, and apparently the leader of of the the world sort of had a moment where she's like, "I, I don't know what's going on. I'm freaking out. Everybody needs to cut off their penises." And <laughs> in this sort of freak out moment, and of course nobody's going to do that because duh, right? right? Because that's insane. Um, so what they do is they they like create a bunch of of penises and they like pile them outside her door until such time as they can they can remove her from power essentially sort of to appease her like here are a bunch of of penises have a nice we really did cut them off here they are yes (laughs) Um, and i found this so utterly fascinating because of course it highlights that distinction um this is a this is a culture with a very different perspective on genitalia uh than breck and so she she sort of arrives here and is, is quite confused about Everything uh, and this this belief that the Radchai don't have penises, um, at least in, it, in the myth, um, which of course seems like nonsense. But uh, and I was hoping, I think we've already kind of covered it now because I just talked all about it. <laughs> <laughs> I love this moment, and just to be clear, it's like two pages out of the book. It's not like you know, in case you didn't want to read about ice searing orange penises, it's it's a brief sort of moment. It's uh, like eighty percent of the book. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, yeah, the whole book is about penises. No, it should be but. called ancillary. Well, never mind. Ancillary <laughs> right? People were wondering about that title. Um, <laughs> it's a that's, that's a different question I have for later. Oh, yeah, you're not the only one to have that question, actually. Um, yeah, it was. It's basically a throwaway, except um, one of the things that. Uh, when I had the idea, and I thought, this is going to be hilarious. And I said, you know, what's really kind of interesting to me is the way that origin stories about things are very often, people believe them very firmly to be true, but they really say more about what people think a holiday or a custom is about more than they really actually say something about the actual origin of the custom. Because, for instance, the story that Captain Hetness tells Breck about the origin of the genitalia festival is transparently nonsense. It can't possibly be true. Um, and then later, of course, Breck is talking to somebody else and somebody's like, oh, no, that festival's much older than the Raja invasion. Um, and so I was really interested in the ways that uh, not just Captain Hetness, but people in general would say something. Oh, this is true. This is, of course, true. And yet it's really obvious that it can't be true. Uh, that was that was the thing that really caught my eye when I had that idea. And uh, I sort of tried to carry that through uh, carry it through in other incidents in the book, of course. Excellent. Yeah, I think that's an interesting way, too, that the there is throughout the book uh, a sort of passive exploration of the deep past i think there's a moment when breck uh i think has a set of dishes that are like twelve thousand years old or some ridiculous age um and they're not worth much but she has these dishes and they're they're sort of ancient in the same way that this this tradition may extend back well beyond uh even even memory or any real written memory like when i mean if you think about it in our own way when we look at our our traditions I mean, why do we do the things that we we do? I mean, we have stories about why, but 
there certainly was like those stories stop at some point. So what happens before that? What are, where do they actually arise from? Um, mm-hmm. so it seems always missing. Um, yeah. So, but okay. So the other question I had, which was about voyeurism, uh, because, uh, for much of the book, Breck is trying to be, uh, it, we've talked about before the sort of conflict she has with, she's no longer an ancillary, um, but she's sort of trying, but never quite reaching that point. But as the, the fleet captain on, uh, this particular ship, uh, she does have the ability to, to monitor and watch her crewmates, um, uh, and the people underneath her in basically everything that they do, uh, mm-hmm. In, in very explicit detail, uh, and I was hoping you could talk about, about this because of course she is somebody who is watching them in their interpersonal relationship. She understands like where their, their anger comes from because she can see conversations that they've had that they think are private. Uh, and this is something that is, is like just rooted from the start of the novel. I mean, the first hundred pages, it's like she's watching people constantly. It also serves as a really interesting narrative device. Because you can tell the stories of these other characters without ever going into their heads. Well, not literally going into their heads as in a point of view. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, to some extent it's a cheat, right? I can get different scenes in different places wherever there's somebody who's from the ship. Uh, I said, boy, that's very handy. Uh, but also, um, you know, she sees as much as she sees because she's an ancillary uh, and ship can feed her that data. I doubt that another captain would see quite as much as she sees. And she doesn't think twice about it, of course. Um, but I also think that, uh, and, and I've, I've seen a couple of readers comments of, boy, that's really kind of creepy that, uh, Breck is watching everything. I mean, if Breck wants to, she can watch people have sex or go to the bathroom or just by thinking about it. And, and that's really kind of abusive and strange. Uh, but at the same time, this is a society with almost no expectation of privacy, the way that we would think about it. And so that is kind of interesting. And I'm not a hundred percent sure how I feel about that exactly in terms of her character. Um, but it's, it's sort of part of the world building. It's part of who she is. And I think it would be really difficult for her to give that up completely. I mean, she could, she did when she wasn't, when she didn't have a ship. Right. But, uh, certainly she misses it when she gets it again. Yeah, I don't know if calling it, I mean, it, it's creepy from our perspective where we, we believe we have privacy, um, to, well, maybe only a little bit now since there is that whole NSA thing, but, uh, <laughs> but I mean, well, we, even we the do. NSA hopefully doesn't have cameras in our bathrooms, right? I, I, I hope so. not because they've seen some things. Well, you know, to some extent they deserve what they get if they do, right? I, hmm. I would I could just, have a camera oh. in the but, nope. Man, if I found out that they put cameras in my bathtub, I would do so many weird things in there. <laughs> you don't have to entertain things. them, though. That would not, be entertainment. No, 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 no. I mean, like, like things that don't make any sense. Like, I would go in the bathtub and, like, dressed as Santa and just sit on the floor for an hour. Uh-huh. Not uh-huh. do anything. Just sit there. You know, just because. Like, they, and just because I know some dude in a room somewhere is watching that video and has to watch all hour of me sitting there dressed as Santa. But that's not the way, that's not the way that surveillance works. It gets data dumped and eventually, eventually later mined or fast forwarded through. So, somebody okay, can watch. And I will do it for 56 hours straight. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I mean, you're, you're, you're kind of conflating modern surveillance with, uh, the surveillance tactics of the Stasi in East Germany, where they were watching stuff 24-7 all the time. And I forgot the name of the damn movie, but there's a really good movie about the Stasi watching Goodbye, Lenin. 
No, no, not that one. It's a different one. Good, Goodbye Land is a good movie, Julia. But there's a different one where it's just about the Stasi and and they're basically their their surveillance state of East Germany. And I'm not remembering it offhand. And we're gone, we've gone way off topic. But my 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 point my point was we're you're, we're making the making the erroneous assumption that Breck is human. She's a humanoid, but she's not human. She's a she's, human. she's a decanted ancillary, and so her perceptions and expectations of what she is and what she should be doing are very different from humanity. And so I, I found, I found it just like a distancing sort of marker of her inhumanity that she would be this warrior because, okay, well, she used to have 20 bodies and only has one now. So, so of course, when she has a ship, she's going to be watching that because that's what she did when she had, she had tons of ancillaries. It, it just isn't, it's just it's a way of making her more alien. Was that your intent, Anne? No, I was just sort of following logically where her character would go. And you're right. That's absolutely, um, there's no way that put in that situation, she wouldn't watch because that's what she's used to. Are you still there? Yeah. Yes. Okay. I heard, was hearing sounds like it was cutting off. Yeah. So, I mean, because she's an ancillary, that's what she's going to do. Uh, but you're right. That is the implication of that. Uh, and, and also, like I said, this is not a society that expects privacy in the way that we do, particularly soldiers serving on military ships assume that the ship is watching them all the time, uh, because the ship is watching them all the time. That's its job. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think that's the key distinction. I mean, it, it, from our perspective, that level of surveillance may seem quite, quite unsettling, but when you put it in the context of the world that this is taking place in, it's matter of fact it's it's every day i mean it went even in the, the way it's described i mean nothing about what breck is doing she, there's no question about what what she's doing about whether or not it's right right uh, somebody who yeah. was doing something that was wrong would would have those moments of like feeling something something bad about doing it or feeling like i need i don't want to get caught but that is never a question right except no, in, like, maybe uh-huh. in some cases where she's worried like maybe they'd find out like i watched them like in their magic happy pot place right but but (laughs) But even then she probably wouldn't worry about it right um and she does she does turn away at one point where there's two people about to have sex and she's kind of well i'll I'll leave them alone now right but not necessarily because she'd feel guilty if she watched just because she's not interested right um and and you know the, the the places where an ai can't see actually are the problem in the novel right the undergarden is really what causes the problems it's what station doesn't see that's the problem not so much what station does see uh and so it's just it's just a very different situation from what we're used to expecting and have you ever watched colossus the forbidden project oh ages and ages ago yes because uh-huh. I suddenly started thinking about a plot line in that movie where they basically start passing messages by saying, well, I need to, we have to have I need sex. to have sex with my mistress and you can't watch because that's creepy. Uh-huh. I'll, I'll use that as a way of tra- passing messages back and forth. As we're talking about, Except like, it does watch. Yes, I know. That's that's the delightful part of it. It watches anyway. It's like, the end. Humanity dies. I'm sorry. I just spoiled Colossus the Forbin Project. Well, well, eventually we'll talk about it on Skipping Fanty. It really just needs a better better uh edition than the pan and scan crap you can get on dvd but that's a different topic we keep going off on subjects sean rescue me here or or i'll ask a or ask a different question all i'm gonna say is that uh my professor gave me that movie 
telling me it was really, really good. And I was like, man, it's probably going to suck, right? And then it turned out it was actually really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. So if you've not and seen... And it shouldn't be so interesting for what it is. <laughs> it really right, should... it should suck. It's really cheesy, but it's really an interesting movie, yeah. Yeah, but... Yeah, we'll sideline that because that, that is a movie we probably should talk about on our show at some point because it's actually really good. Um, but, Paul, you said you, you had a question you could I, jump I, to. So I, 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 I did. So I, I alluded to this before. So I had a question about the titles of the series, Anne. Our, mm-hmm. our, first, our first book is Ancillary Justice, and it revolves around this former, this former ancillary who commanded a justice ship. But then, okay, now this book, she has a mercy ship, but the book is called ancillary sword and the next book is ancillary mercy so i'm kind of confused as to where you're going with the titles and how they're matching up i'm 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 missing the pattern here you're not the only one you are not the only one uh i had several people ask me before i turned in uh sword why i didn't call that one mercy uh but I guess that the, the short version of it is you'll just have to trust me. Um, the longer version is that actually when I began writing, Sword of Atagaris was the sword that I was thinking of. Oh, okay. Uh, and so it ended up not having, I mean, it did have an important role, but also kind of because of the way the AI characters operate, it's never quite to the forefront. I mean, for instance, Station is a really important character, but Station is almost never like right up front. And so Sword of Atagaris is a really important character, but Sword of Atagaris is almost never up front on stage. Uh, it's always kind of in the background. Uh, and so to some extent, that's a problem of I'm a pantser when I write. Uh, and so one of the things that happened was Sword of Atagaris didn't get as prominently featured as I thought it would be at the beginning of the book. Um and also, to be honest, I felt that uh, Justice Sword Mercy was a better arc than Justice Mercy Sword. I, I, I can buy that last, especially. It, it just just seems like okay, it's a Mercy ship, but the book is called Sword. So thinking, yeah. Originally, actually, um, when I first wrote uh, Ancillary Justice, that was not its title. The title, the original title of Ancillary Justice was Justice of Torin. And if I was ever going to be lucky enough to work it up into a trilogy, it was going to be Justice of Torin, Sword of Atagaris, Mercy of Color. Uh, We're going to be the three titles. Okay. And, uh, and that, of course, and then my agent was like, no, Justice of Torin, no, we need another title. And, uh, so Ancillary Justice, I'm like, well, I can still do my Mercy Sword Justice sequence and just put ancillary in front of it and it will work. So that's part of why the title is the way it is. But I mean, sort of Atagaris really is kind of a crucial character in that story. It, it, yeah. Well, I don't want to get into too deep spoilers as to, as well reveals of what sword's been up to, but you're right. You're right. I buy, I think of mercy because that's, that's Breck ship and where we spend a lot of the time until we get in and around the station. But okay. Not, not, okay. Understood. And I'll have to see when you, when you write and finish and I read Ancillary Mercy, what you're up to with that. <laughs> well, I, I hope it works, right? Because I am a pantser and I never quite know 100% what's going to come out. So so is book three in the process of being written right now? Sadly, it is. Yes, I am still in the middle of writing book three. It's <sighs> moving very slowly. That means we all here? have to wait. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't generally write in the evenings, so you're not keeping me from writing. I write during the daytime. I tease, I tease. Take well, all the time you need. Well, we, we don't want the we don't want the listeners of Skipping Fanny coming up with this pitch book. You kept Dan from writing that book. And then no. John and Elio. Kept me from writing. 
Yeah, and then John and Elio will write a write a song about it, and yeah, it'll be so, Anne Lecky is not owned by you. <laughs> is Mercy a big focus in book three so far? Yes. Okay, yes. so it's still going to be because I agree with Paul. Like book two does seem to be Mercy is front and center. So are we going to see more in book three? I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Can can I also just mention that I I just want to like hug and and kiss the book covers. I oh, I love my covers. God, yes. Every now and then I come across somebody's like, oh, those book covers. I don't like the book covers. And I'm like, I don't know what's wrong with you. I love my book covers. I everybody's book covers to... are awesome. I think so too. I, you know, people are allowed to have incorrect opinions about my book covers. It's okay. <laughs> I love them because they, the, I see, like, if I put this here and I look at it as though I were walking to a bookstore, I immediately think space opera, I think science fiction, I don't think adventure story, I think a very particular kind of science fiction. It, like, immediately, like, lights up the little lights in my brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just, I just want it. I want to, I want to devour it. Uh, not literally because I'm sure I would get sick from actually eating the book. Um, but you know, who knows? Can you eat a book? Uh, I'm not sure that you can digest paper very well. I don't think it's, that's it, good it, for you, Sean. It, it's wood, it's wood pulp. You'll probably just excrete it. <laughs> that's a great way to describe what would happen. I'm sorry. Possibly. I have so a degree less, in biology. Like, I could maybe be a little gassy on the way. <laughs> I, I think it would definitely cause some gas. You would probably need a lot of Pepto. <laughs> uh, because there's the ink. You got to think about the ink, too. And I feel like that would just irritate your stomach lining. The ancillary series brought to you by Pepto Bismol. <laughs> I will say so, one one thing that I uh, really enjoy about the covers for these books is that, aside from agreeing with Sean that they do actually signify science fiction, space opera, awesomeness, they're very appealing color wise, and also they make me think of goldfish or koi, and um, I, I feel like it's appropriate that I should associate fish and the ancillary books. That makes sense. That does make sense. I love the color scheme. I, you know, when I was little, there was, in fact, I think this book is still in print. There's a kid book called, a kid's book called Anne Likes Red. And when I was very small, I felt like somebody had written a book about me. Because you like red? Because I love red. And so it it was seriously, when I was a little girl and somebody gave me that for my birthday and I was like, how did they know? It's all about me. And yeah. And so what I love is how red and how bright and dramatic those colors are. I really like that. I I feel very much the same way about Shaun of the Dead. (laughs) I think that movie, uh, people may not know this, but it's actually a true story about my life. So Your best friend is a zombie? And you got red on you. Yep. <laughs> That's yep. probably Anne's fault. Yeah. It probably is. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, uh, Julie, did you have a, a question you want to jump to, or we could keep going down this rabbit hole? <laughs> <laughs> so many rabbit holes. Well, so it's hard to ask questions without spoiling things. And I'm having, that's, that's the main problem I'm having here is not wanting to spoil the novel for other people. Do you want to put up a spoiler wall real quick? No, no, because I, I really think people should just read them. They're awesome. Um, but I'm going to take it to a different direction that's not book related. And that's, and you won how many awards for ancillary justice? Oh my God. Like six? Like, like six or seven. Yeah. So I think it might be seven. I'm imagining the first time it was this amazing sort of shock and wonder and 
and euphoria. But each successive time, did it start to become routine ever? No, no. But it did become more and more surreal as it went on. Absolutely. Yeah. The first time I was the very first one. And this is a measure of uh, how delightful it was. The very first one was the Golden Tentacle. And the fact that I know what the first one was says a lot about uh, about how marvelous that was. Uh, I love my little hand-sewn golden tentacle satin with little sparkly pom-poms on it, you know, and it's up on my mantle. And I was like, oh, that is so validating and marvelous and wonderful. And then they just kind of kept coming. And finally, I was like, is any of this real? Am I dreaming? Did somebody put LSD in my tea? I, what? You know, it, it was just... And every now and then I'll look at them on the mantle and just go, that's not real. I'm really not seeing that. It's it's amazing. Yeah. So how many were you able to accept in person? Um, Only the Nebula and the Hugo. Only two. Only two. Only two giant science fiction awards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so aside from the Golden Tentacle being your favorite for sentimental reasons because it came first... Which is your favorite just by sheer beauty of the trophy? Oh, that's easy, actually. Um, it's the Nebula. Why? I, I, have you seen a Nebula Award? I, I know what they're like, but I want you to tell me why it's They awesome. are so beautiful. They're just, um, I mean, I've never seen one that I didn't think was beautiful. It's a big chunk of clear lucite with these sort of round, polished stones. Apparently, there's a SIFWA volunteer who chooses beautiful polished stones to put in Nebula Awards. That's this person's job. Uh, and then glitter, like in spiral shapes and stuff. And so it's glittery and it has these beautiful round stones in it and this big chunk of lucite. And it's just, it's the most beautiful thing. Yeah, I hands down, it's the most beautiful of the trophies. That sounds so beautiful. That sounds awesome. So does any of this make your children respect you more? <laughs> I laugh merrily. Um, not so they would like let me see it. <laughs> oh, that's always the way. Let, let me tell you, as as a former child, uh, <laughs> we, we keep it deep down, but it's there. Yeah, I I uh, I had thought that my kids didn't, you know, weren't impressed one way or the other. But last year, uh. I went in for conferences and my son's English teacher said to me, oh, your son told us about your book that you had published. And so obviously he was, you know, talking, talking me up at school. Uh, but, you know, at home, I hardly ever see any sign of it. So I will go back to the book a little bit and say, uh, coming back to something we were talking about earlier, where you said it's the place that the station doesn't see. It's the things that station doesn't see that cause the problems. And um, I think that that's definitely true, but it's also something that's really interesting because when you're writing with so much omniscient viewpoint, just because the ship can see everything, the station can see everything, it, it seemed really interesting to be where the, the station couldn't see. And how did you come up with that? How did you decide what the station couldn't see and where that conflict was going to come from? I honestly don't know. That was one of those things that... Um... I, I tend to have like sort of big landmarks in a in a plot, but I'm not sure how I'm getting from one landmark to the next. And very often things can change radically as I'm moving along. Um, and that was one of the things that I was just kind of feeling my way forward. And to some extent, for purely mechanical reasons, I needed a place where station couldn't see um, because nothing 
the whole the, the big thing that happened near the end, the big set piece near the end, uh, could not have happened if Station could see under the under the garden. I like how you just completely managed to avoid talking about what happens. <laughs> I yeah. And and actually that that set piece was something that I had planned pretty early in the planning process. That was one of the big landmarks. I knew I was writing toward that. Um and to some extent uh I mean it's a problem when you're writing a society that has uh, so much when you have AI seeing so much, how can stuff happen? How can you have crime, right? There's, there are no mysteries in a society like that. There are no accidents in a society like that, right? And then you have no plots or you have very boring ones. Um, so to a certain extent, it was sort of a, a mechanical necessity that I needed a place where a station couldn't see. But once again, once you set that up, then you say, well, what does that mean? What are the implications of that? What can I get out of that? And so that was that was a lot of fun doing that, saying, well, I need a PlayStation can't see. Now, what do I use it for? What how does it does it mean something? Can I get something out of it? And it was really interesting. So, Paul, you have a hand. I do. So so this this bounces off a little bit to more general questions about the plot and the scale of the book. This the ancillary justice felt me this big widescreen space opera set in two different time zones across multiple planets spaceships big the, the, the whole widescreen epic that 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 sean will chew and devour and have to uh eat have pepto-bismol for for ancillary sword by comparison felt like a more intimate story was that deliberate on your part you mentioned you were a pantser were you intending to go for a more focused character look at breck and her the aftermath of the first novel or did it just come out of what you were pantsing that, that this came to be a much more like narrow book. I mean, we've talked about the, the book two problems and sequel light and the, the whole middle syndrome. And you seem to have, instead of going bigger and wider as many books to books two in series do, you went the reverse. So I wanted you to talk about that. Yeah. To some extent, um, during the sort of as much planning as I do during that planning process, uh, one of the questions, the very basic questions that I asked was, well, logically, what happens next? And one of the conclusions that I came to was that space is really big. Space is huge. And it's going to take a long time for things to get to where she is for there to be any big war. Um, and even, you know, even here in the real world, here on Earth, uh, if you look at, you know, uh, Napoleonic naval battles, you know, you can sit around for weeks. You, uh, you know, you've got folks drinking up a storm and eating and hanging out until finally the enemy ship turns up and then you have your battle. Uh, and so I thought about that and I said, well, that's a sort of a semi-realistic thing. So given that, if, if I'm working with that premise, then what happens next? Well, what happens next is things have to be a lot more quiet and a lot more uh, sort of uh, socially oriented and character oriented and not so much the big space battles. Um, so so it was sort of part of the planning process, but also like most of my planning process, it's kind of a, an accident. Okay. I, I was curious. I was curious how you were going to do it. I mean, we get hints of the bigger world out there. We talk a little bit more about the aliens, especially the Presker. We we get a sense of things moving, especially beyond that gate. But it's is it is very much a more intimate story. And I appreciate you for doing that. It would have been easy to try to go bigger, better, faster, and that that might have been the 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 instinct that I would have expected when I when I first heard about the book, but you, you went, you went in a new and interesting direction. You didn't repeat yourself, which 
I appreciate because you, you showed a different facet of the universe in a more character oriented way and I and got to illuminate more about the world and I and I like it. I'm glad I'm glad you enjoyed that. I also personally as a reader, um I mean I like high stakes and I like raising stakes, but there gets to be a point where it just keeps getting higher and higher and higher and higher and higher until it gets completely ridiculous, right? Um you know, you're always looking for the next thing to raise the stakes, except when the universe is at stake, how can you possibly raise it any higher, right? right. Um and so I wanted to avoid that. I definitely wanted to avoid that. Um and also um I kind of feel like as a reader Sometimes uh, the kinds of advice that new writers get and that we sort of pass around as writers talks about stakes and interest and suspense as though it's all about the physical action and all about the universe being at risk. When, in fact, I feel like suspense and interest have a lot more to do with caring about the characters. And so something can be intensely suspenseful, like... Are they going to put sugar in their tea can be intensely suspenseful and feel like the whole world is hanging on it. But we don't tend to think of that or talk about that as being suspenseful or high stakes. And so I kind of wanted to do something that was going to be interesting on the character level and compelling, but not necessarily, you know, the, the planet exploding kind. Although there is spoiler an explosion of a sort in the book, but there is just- indeed. That, that that's that, that's a teaser for the listeners who have not read the books. Yes, there is an explosion involved. It's not all sitting around drinking tea, although there is plenty of tea and tea gruel. And you have lots of variations on tea in this book. I know you're a tea fan. Yes, you have yes, even I more. Am. You have m- many more variations on tea than even in the first book, which I found very interesting. Yeah, well, you know, I started off doing research, and then as I kept doing more and more research, I was like, tea, more tea, more tea. Yes, and yeah. And, and one of the things. I'm sorry, I seem to be hogging the podcast. Um, one of the things I found interesting is you almost, it, maybe it was just a misapprehension on my part, I almost felt like in some ways that tea in this book, and I think we discussed it on Twitter, tea in this book, book felt feels almost not quite like the tea of ours in some ways because they talk about almost like, almost like addiction and and sort of uh, dependence on tea in, a way, in ways that feel almost like people addicted to more stronger drugs was that intended on your part maybe something i just read into it by accident oh i don't know um it is tea it is real tea like you know the the plants they're growing it's it's camellia sinensis it that's actual tea um and the tea they drink is really tea have you ever been addicted to caffeine i am addicted to caffeine like most like most 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 like many of us yes who Um, isn't addicted to caffeine i know some people who aren't there are there are there are some poor souls who have escaped Kepin's clutches or never. I don't think any of them it. are writers. Well, I'll just say <laughs> yeah, that no, I have, I've gone through several periods where I don't drink caffeine for various reasons. Um, I'm not in one of them right now, but I was a few months ago, but during those times I drank a ton of herbal tea. So I'm dependent on tea. Yeah. Yeah. And well, you know, you get, you get dependent on not just the caffeine, but I think on the, having the hot beverage it kind of has a its warm, own sort of flavored... psychosomatic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a, it's the well being that you get from having this warm flavored beverage that you make by pouring hot water over leaves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's the same thing that can happen with um, with sodas because you can get like a non caffeinated, no real sugar soda, right? One of those zero mm-hmm. calorie things, but yet you can still get addicted to that. You can still like constantly want to drink them because there's something about the 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 sensation of sugary bubbly 
the, yeah. the bite of the soda, I guess you could say. Um, at least I get that way sometimes where I'll, I'll drink one of those doesn't have anything in it. It's just, it's just bubbly water and chemicals, but for some reason it fills a need. Yeah, you got to have it. That's well, hopefully when you stop them, you don't get a headache, which is <laughs> what happens with caffeine. Um, but yeah, it, it's interesting, isn't it? We don't think of coffee or tea as a drug, but it both of them really are. They're psychoactive substances. And I think it's kind of funny that, uh, for instance, like uh, AA or uh, Al-Anon or whatever, uh, I know a number of uh, alcoholics who don't drink alcohol, but they drink copious amounts of coffee and tea. And they say, well, I don't take any drugs, right? I've, I've sworn them off. But, oh, they have all the coffee and tea. And it's interesting where we draw the line. I'm not trying to say that's wrong or bad or hypocritical. It's just I think it's a really interesting uh, cultural thing where we call this one class of things drugs that one can be addicted to and this other class of things just isn't. But it kind of is, isn't it? It is. It is. It, 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 it takes a science fiction novel and of, of tea drinkers to actually illuminate that. Yes, tea is tea is tea is a drug too. Tea is so, a drug, absolutely. So, Anne, you mentioned doing a lot of research. Did that involve drinking a lot of tea personally? Oh my goodness, yes, yes. It was a terrible job, but somebody had to do it. I I, I took one for the team. Don't you have a line of teas? Uh, it's not exactly a line of teas. Uh, Adagio, which is an online, I I don't think they began as an online tea company, but they have an online presence, lets you, uh, blend. They have a list of their, their teas that they'll let you blend up in various percentages and they'll package it up for you and mail it to you. And, um, at some point, I guess folks started blending teas that were inspired by particular fandoms. So there are several, like, folks blending Firefly-themed teas or My Little Pony-themed teas or Supernatural-themed teas. And I found this out, and I was like, you know, if there is not an ancillary justice tea, then there's a problem with this world. <laughs> and Okay. I need to know, what is this again? Adagio. Okay, you go to Adagio. Uh, if you go to my blog, there's a link from my blog. Uh, but if you go to Adagio, it's Adagio.com, I think. And uh, you click on Fandom Blends, and there are a bunch of, you know, you can pick letters of the alphabet for fandoms. There's tons of them. If you click on I, it's Imperial Roch, and you'll see there's uh, Justice, Propriety, and Benefit. And actually, I also have a T for each of the emanations. Okay, well, uh, by the time this podcast is ended, I will have bought seven thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah, so if anybody is wondering what to get the ancillary justice fan in their life for this winter holiday season, clearly you have a pointer now. Yes, the most popular one is Benefit, which is a black tea, but it's chocolate and orange flavored. Oh, that sounds good. It's not. It's not really sweet. I'm actually not a. Uh, I have become kind of a tea snob, although, I mean, my official position is you should drink whatever tea you think tastes good. So it's, I'm not condemning anybody else's tea choices, but I've gotten kind of like, I, I don't want the blended teas. I want the, you know, this variety of oolong and this variety of, of black, I, you know, give, give me the, the plain stuff. Um, but I really love the benefit. It's not overpoweringly sweet, but it's sort of chocolatey, orangey, and just sort of a very clean taste. And it smells amazing in the bag. It's just, it's incredible. Wow, but they're all, all of them. They're all good. 
Some of them are some of them are currently unavailable, which is sad. Yes, yeah the the uh, the Eskvar, sadly, which is uh, Puer with chocolate and strawberry, which is another good one. Uh, and what's the, the other one? Oh, the Estrepa Bow and the Justice Two. Oh yeah. Um, in fact, the reason there are two justices is because the first justice that I made, which was a green tea with coconut, uh, and it's actually quite nice was made with one particular kind of green tea and then that went out of stock and then the second book came out and I was like, I want to tell people about the tea but they can't buy justice and so I blended up another version with a different green tea and it's also very nice. So one or the other should be available but I can't do anything about the Eskvar. The Atrepa Bow um, is, uh, it's got just a tiny little bit, it's peach, black tea and just a tiny little bit of Lapsang Suchong which gives it kind of a smoky taste. I can't stand Lapsang Suchong by itself but it's really nice with the peach. So I hope it becomes available. Why am I not rich? <laughs> I could just buy all of the tea. I, if I were, if I were, if, like, that would be me. Like, if I had Mitt Romney's money, I would spend like half of that on just a bunch of tea farms. Oh my gosh! And I would just go there, and I'd like have a house where I'd sit and like I'd pay a, like a guy, and his job he'd get like hundred thousand dollars a year, and his job would just be to make me like a cup of tea in the morning and a cup of tea at night. That's oh, it. That wouldn't be enough. I... Okay, like twelve hundred cups, but you know. Yeah. Okay, maybe a hundred thousand dollars a year isn't enough for that many cups, but you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, I'm saving this website. So, Sean, <laughs> a while ago you had a hand up, like you had a question. Do you still have a question? <laughs> I mean, I could no, ask a question. Tea. I mean, I, I could just talk about tea for a while. Um. But uh, well, it went back to what Paul was talking about earlier, which is the um, the greater focus in the second novel on the interpersonal relationships. Uh, and I think, you, and I, without spoiling too much, I'm just going to talk about stuff from the beginning of the book because, like, I don't think that ruins anything for people. Um, like, there are some really interesting ways in which Breck is sort of. I, I hesitate to use the word manipulating, but that's kind of what she's doing mm-hmm. in a way to sort of. Uh, get people to do the things that she wants them to do. Uh, and there's, there's so much attention on this. The, you know, the, the, the way in which people have to interact with each other, the, uh, the sort of, you might say like the social element of, of a military ship, the codes and conducts. I mean, so much of that is presented here. Um, and I've, I found that really fascinating. It's particularly when I started seeing what Breck was doing. Like she'd present these situations. There's a moment, for example, when, um, she, she, one of the characters, something, something crazy's happened. I'm not gonna say what it is because that's actually important. Um, but something crazy has happened, and that character's upset. And as a way to sort of work through that, Breck sort of says, "Well, why don't we have a a quote unquote competition? The contest. Between, yes, a contest. Uh, and then the result of that will be uh, the winning group will get basically booze. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, that fires everybody up. They're all super excited. It affects their their morale it creates a kind of environment of um you know competition but positive competition and then of course it creates pride it's this really interesting thing but you like i notice as me as i'm reading this i'm going man breck is smart like doing this whole system and 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 that's the kind of thing that is throughout this book this kind of this this focus on these these minute elements rather than sort of grand scheme as paul was talking about right the, yeah that little things the little things which don't seem like they would be important but actually are 
probably the most important. They're definitely important, aren't they? Yeah. And that, that was what I was talking about before with, you know, we think of high stakes and suspense and important as being world shattering events, planets exploding. But in fact, in a lot of ways, um, you know, who wins the marksmanship contest and what happens after the unit gets drunk is as important as anything else. Uh, and really, actually has a big effect on the the things that blow up later uh and you know the things don't blow up without the people if you don't care about the characters uh this is actually a pet peeve of mine when people talk about suspense as being like high stakes and you don't know that suspense is the the concealment of information but to me suspense isn't that you don't know what's going to happen suspense is that you care what's going to happen and without the characters all the planets in the world could blow up and you just don't care Right. And there's a way in which you can sort of create a different sort of tension out of, I mean, like, for example, when, when, you know, some lower person in Breck's ship, like someone who's way down the totem pole wants to come up and, and say something to the captain that creates this immense tension because they can't say it because it's inappropriate. This is sort of like come out with it. So it has to be incredibly diplomatic and it creates these moments in the book where Something that seems like it's not a big deal is actually extraordinary complicated, extraordinarily complicated, um, because of, you know, how they come about it, how they say what they want to say, right? Even when Breck is like, I'm going to give you what you want <laughs> anyway, uh-huh. but they, the way they have to get to it is this, this very complex process. And we lose that if all we're focusing on is, you know, how many planets are blowing up, right? Yeah. Because that, that nuance is really significant, I think. It is. And when I think one of the things that's fun about science fiction is the the world building, not just on the physical, gosh, wow, uh, you know, large scale. But once you build a society, it's going to act differently, at least if, if you choose to. Some writers don't. Some writers just transplant a society that's recognizable into the future. And that's a perfectly cromulent way to do things. Um, but one of the things that I really enjoy is the sort of different culture. But once you do that, uh, you've got all those things that you can explore because those conversations aren't going to look like those the, that kind of conversation that we would have. It's going to be different. Um, and it's kind of like I've I've actually seen a few people say, oh, wow, this is like sense and sensibility in space. That's and that's that's interesting. Have you read Dorothy Dunnett by any chance? I read the very first of the Lyman books and actually did not enjoy it very much. Huh. Uh, a friend got it for me and she was like, you're going to love this. And I was like, ah, not so much, but. But now Jane Austen, I could totally get behind. Yeah, and Patrick O'Brien, actually, for that matter. That makes sense. I think that's a really interesting comparison because I wouldn't have thought of it, but I can really see it now. And one of the things that I actually really liked about this book that um, I've sort of wondered whether other people liked or didn't like was that I felt like it was a chance to really kind of stretch out and get to know Breck as a person more, Mm -hmm. which is something that, again, you can't really do if you're – moving from crisis to crisis all the time because then you're just stuck in full throttle action mode. But right. when, when you're actually focusing on smaller things, you get a chance to really know a character and what makes them tick. And with Breck particularly because of what she's gone through, it's sort of like she's getting to know herself at the same time in mm-hmm. a way. So that I really liked that, but um, I wasn't sure how, how fans of the first novel were going to take to that. I It seems to be kind of divided because I've actually seen like two 
two different people co- make the sense and sensibility in space comment, but they were like completely opposed. Like one person was like, this is really dull. It's just like sense and sensibility in space. And, and I was like, well, you know, that's fine. And the other person was like, this is like sense and sensibility in space. It's freaking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that just goes to show, right? Everybody's got a different, a different take on it. Um, so I think, uh, from what I've seen, some readers have really enjoyed exactly that, the more character-oriented, not that it wasn't character-oriented before, but the the sort of slower, more intimate scale of this. Uh, and some folks have been kind of frustrated with that, which, you know, that's fine. I can understand that. So for book three, do you think we'll be uh, moving back into a more fast-paced action sort of scenario? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Are we going to get some aliens on stage, or are they going to remain off stage, you think? I'm going to take the fifth on that. Okay. <laughs> because because we've, we've heard hints about these Presker in the first book, and now a lot more in the second book, and I'm very, very curious about about aliens that scare scare the Roch. It's like, okay, yeah. what's... <laughs> how, how, yeah, how, how scary can they be? Exactly. Um, yeah, I, I wish... That I, you know, that's a terrible spoiler. Okay, sorry. I was, I kind of felt bad how quickly that particular thing passed. Oh, interesting. Okay. But it it had to, right? It it had to happen the way, you know, you all know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It had to happen the way that it did, but I regretted not being able to write that more because I really enjoyed that section. That was really a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I was like, no, this has got to happen the way it's going to happen. And there have been some readers like, well, how come? And I was like, eh, it had to, you know. But yeah, I, I mean, I mean, you, to, to to spin this as a positive, your books are relative are not are not nine hundred page Peter F. Hamilton tomes. They're for four hundred pages each. They're lean and mean, even even if they go wide screen or small screen. So yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't want you to pad out six hundred pages and have have the have become droopy. Oh Lord, I wouldn't want to write a six hundred. No, uh, uh-uh. no, no. I will reveal something that's in the next book because I have the inside scoop. There will be an alien burger. An alien burger. An burger alien? made out of alien. Yep. There will. That's what I've been told. <laughs> don't don't play coy. You know it's true. It's gonna be. It comes with a, a little bit of pickle, uh, a pickle <laughs> relish, uh, a, a very very. Uh, meticulously meticulously created uh uh ketchup with just a little hint of uh of sort of smoky barbecue in it uh it's very good <laughs> and i, I and don't think the raja eat burgers well they do now because <laughs> the aliens are just too tasty <laughs> oh that would break the treaty and that would be disastrous yeah, yeah we can't break the treaty with the press code that'd be bad. cannot break that treaty well I, you're assuming that requires a breaking of the treaty. I think it's an exchange of goods. They need tea. We need alien burgers. Done. Um, yeah, this, yeah, this, this conversation's gone into very weird places. It has since the beginning of this podcast. Sorry, Anne. Don't but lie, that, Paul. Quite all right. Don't lie, Paul. You would have an alien burger. I'd probably try an alien burger at least once. <laughs> Sean has very strange obsessions. <laughs> Well, I can understand burger obsessions. <laughs> I'm just so happy because Paul admitted he'd ate an alien burger. I'd be afraid they were like poplars or something. That'd be a problem. Uh-huh. But it's all about how you cook it anyway, so, you know. It'd be like, you know, you're eating somebody's babies. 
this is this is reminding me of a Niven short story where these aliens. It's part of the Draco Tavern series where these aliens come and they're DNA, they're DNA based and they want to they want human DNA so they can make human burgers and oh like vat raised yeah huh yeah so would you they're, eat they're, a vat raised human burger I wouldn't but I could see how aliens wanting to do that can, can I answer that question too yeah yes. would you. Uh, are we assuming that the legal question is no longer in, in play? It, it, it's basically human. If you this had is completely human, theoretical. Yeah, yeah, if the tech was cells. there to like, you know, like clone, no, no person, no dead person involved, like vat raised meat, right? Vat raised human meat. It's not illegal for me to consume it. Right. right. Okay. Care? I would try it. You know, I'm not sure if I could bring myself to. I have not thought about that before, but that and in theory that shouldn't be a problem, but it's weird, isn't it? But that my first thought is like, "Oh, yo, no, uh-uh." Um, isn't that odd? Well, it's yeah. a taboo. I mean, we we don't yeah. consume other people. It's considered yeah. it's considered in most cultures to be like one of the most disgusting things you could do. It, it, it is very transgressive. It reminds me of a role-playing game, which um, um, which I'm actually involved in right now, where it's set on an alien planet. There's different kinds of humans, all, all different colors. There's blue men, green men, old firemen. And one of the things is, yes, you do eat other kinds of humans. That's okay. You don't eat your own blue men, but if, yeah, if you kill that red man and you're hungry, yeah, you could eat him. It's a very it's very strange playing in this culture because I got to break myself of the taboo because my character yeah my character would eat would eat that. Mm-hmm. Well, there are a number of chance. cultures where it's not a taboo, of course. There, yeah. there are a number sure. of cultures where it hasn't been. But yeah, isn't that it's interesting how strong that is? I was thinking uh, the novel that I I thought of was Typey by Melville, uh, which probably nobody has read. I uh, haven't read that one. Uh, it, it's intended, I think, as as a dark comedy of sorts, or maybe a satire a little bit. Uh, and the basic premise is a guy on a on a military ship who jumps ship. He decides he doesn't want to do it anymore, and he jumps off onto an island uh, where there is a native people. And he's been told that one of them eats other people and one of them doesn't. And he's constantly paranoid throughout the book about which one is actually the cannibal people. Uh, <laughs> As a way to sort of highlight like, during this period this sort of – this mythic idea that when you go to these sort of island cultures and these these quote-unquote foreign cultures, this belief that they were all cannibals and these mm-hmm. – like that was the, the, the height of primitivism is you ate other people. Um, and it's sort of in that way kind of a play on that. It's not a terribly good novel, but it is short. So – but huh. there are moments – like there's a moment when he, he like runs – he's like running away from the other people and he like – stumbles into these this other group and he starts freaking out because he's decided they are the cannibals and he's like lost his mind he's like trying to get away and they're like looking at him like going what the hell is his problem (laughs) what is he so freaking out about yeah so there are some moments that are kind of funny but that's what i was thinking of is is that sort of european fear of of being consumed by the native um but which at least in some ways connects to the sort of imperial themes of your of your novel your novels, even though you don't deal with cannibalism. No, I don't deal with cannibalism. Uh, but boy, it's one of those. Yeah, and that's that really sort of racist. Oh, the the savage cannibals. Yeah. 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 It would be really interesting, and I wonder if somebody has done this, this sort of like a, a history of of cannibalism, 
like to understand not like like it's practice but rather the fear surrounding it like where does that Mm -hmm. come from i that yeah that could be interesting i'm sure somebody's done something in that area they must have there must be a book on it Mm mm-hmm yeah, because I would read that. I find that so fascinating. Like, when was the first prohibition that we have on record against cannibalism, and why did it exist? Mm-hmm. You know, what were the what were the ancient people's reasons for not eating other people? You know, was it that they just thought it was weird, or or was there like were there people who ate other people and they're like, whoa, that's kind of not cool. Maybe we should ban that because that's pretty <laughs> effed up. <laughs> I don't know. I want to know the reasons for things. <laughs> well, go to the university library and and ask for the Library of Congress number that pertains to cannibalism. <laughs> what what is the Library of Congress heading for cannibalism? God. I will find out. The, I will find out the truth of this one day. I'll become a cannibal expert. I'm really unsure how we ended up God. having a big conversation about cannibalism. Sure. This is not one of my favorite topics. We started with alien burgers. We can talk about something else. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we can switch. I think that's fair. I um, don't want to think about eating people. I'd rather think about space opera. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. It's so, all right. Ask something about space opera. Well, we'll be so off I, another rabbit hole. I think that a... Uh, one of the things that I should point out is that I was lucky enough to get to edit a short story set in this universe for people who are really hungering for more and can't wait for the third book because we have no idea how long that will be. You should go over to Strange Horizons because we just finished our fun drive and one of the bonus stories was She Commands Me and I Obey, um, which is a wonderful short story and I will let Anne describe it so that I don't inadvertently spoil it because I don't know how to talk about it without spoiling oh. it. I would probably just say it's it it has some a familiar character in it. Um and it is to a certain extent I in fact I wrote it while I was writing Ancillary Justice because there was there was a question that in my mind I had to answer before I could continue to write Ancillary Justice. Uh and so then I said, Well, I can get a short story out of this and send it around. And so that was what I did. I wrote that short story. So um it's it's a short story that I have I've seen several people say, Gosh, I want to know what's behind that when they had read Ancillary Justice. Well, if you want to know what's behind that, you want to read the story. Um I won't even say what it is, but you'll recognize immediately what what's going on. <laughs> that was the vaguest description ever. It's a really vague description. Can I we, know. Can we say it involves the ball game? It does involve the ball game. It involves the ball game, which um, I saw. I saw somebody say, "Well, gee, this seems a lot like the Mesoamerican ball game." I'm like, "There's a reason for that." <laughs> yeah, and we we got wonderful art by Tori Hoke. So you, oh, it's yeah. the best art. Yeah, I'm looking yeah. at it right now. Yeah, that's 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 a pretty sweet picture. That was pretty much the best, like the ideal art commission exchange where. I approached Tori, who had done, she had written a story for Strange Horizons, and she'd illustrated for us before, and I said, you know, we have this story by Anne Leckie, Um, I don't know if you've read these books, but it's in the Ancillary Justice universe, and we're wondering if you'd be interested in doing it, and she was like, I'm a giant fan, yes, and (laughs) uh, I, I sort of, you know, said, okay, here are a few things that you should realize, like, all the people are dark skinned, she's like, no, I'm on it, and then she gave the exact perfect illustration that we could have wanted so yeah it was wonderful when when you emailed that to me and i looked at it i was like oh that is so marvelous yeah (laughs) i really like that 
Yeah, it it was it was a dream interaction where the artist happened to be a fan of the work and got it and did a wonderful job and the story was great. It was ah, one of the best things mm-hmm. that I've done this year. Yeah, but it's my one and only sports story. I'm actually not a sports fan. Um, but during the time that I was writing that, my mom was my mom would would buy season hockey tickets. She was a huge hockey fan. She had become a, a huge hockey fan late in her life, and she would take like me and the kids to the hockey game. And if you're not if you're not a sports fan, really, and that that's almost sort of like an alien culture, and you go to these things, and you go to three or four of these things in a row, and it's like. Uh, you know, you're sitting there watching this weird, highly ritualized communal thing, and it's, you almost feel like an anthropologist, you know? Uh, it's very strange. And the more I watched it, I was like, yeah, yeah, this is really interesting. I need to do something sportsy. But of course, I'm not a sports person. But She Commands Me and I Obey was the result of my deciding I needed to write a sports story and needed to explain some things about ancillary justice to myself. Well, it is, uh, it's a good story. I'm not a giant sports fan either, but uh, it gripped me and it has a really good kick to it there in the middle. I won't <laughs> say more than that. Yeah. Spoilers. Is that a pun? I don't know if it's really a kick, though. It's not a kick. It's, not it's a kick. more a It's more a punch. Blow. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's a story that packs a punch of sorts. <laughs> ah, zing. That's that's adorable. That's adorable. Well, I take it you've read the story. Me? No. I no. I'm okay. a bad person. I, I have. Okay. I read, I read I'm the only one that has no idea what's going on then, right now. And then I read part two when that got unlocked. Okay. Yeah, I, I need to read it. Yeah, you should. Have, you it's should not that long, it Sean. It's not very long. Yes, Masters. Not I compared shall, to a novel. Kidding. I mean, yes, oh, Fleet yeah. Captain. I shall do what you ask. <laughs> All right. I think we should probably think about wrapping up because we've been at this for a while. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah. Anne, tell us where we can find you. What's coming next? Are you appearing in person? Etc. Uh, I think that actually I'm going to be at Subterranean Books here in St. Louis on whatever the there's like an Indies first day. Is it the 29th of November? This is terrible. I think it's the 29th of November uh, for a couple of hours uh, pretending to be a person who can sell books. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, a, a, it's a day when authors go and sort of volunteer at indie bookstores and kind of help out and help sell books just before the Christmas thing. Uh, so I'll be at Subterranean Books on the 29th, I think, from 2 to 4. Other than that, uh, I've been, you know, every now and then people say, oh, can you do such and such? I'm like, no, <laughs> no. I can't. I've been a bazillion places this year and I got to finish the book. So, uh, so for the next few months, it's going to be me with my head down in the manuscript. Fair enough. Fair enough. But there's always a new con season next year. There certainly is. Yeah. So you can go to 8,000 things next year. Yeah, we can find out from St. Louis. We can find out how many awards Ancillary Sword will be nominated for. Oh, I'm, I don't think it's going to have quite the reception that Ancillary Justice did. But that's all right because, you know, there should be enough for everybody else, too. I think that's really difficult, too, because uh, I feel like a lot of people always read the first book and they don't always read the second. That's a whole nother podcast. But that is a whole, a whole other thing. thing. Yeah. And it's also but- kind of, I don't know, it, I feel like, like expectations about awards for sequels is sort of just, it's very different. Because sequels well, are just a very different monster. 
sequels are a different thing. And I can totally understand a sequel often doesn't stand alone as well on its own. Uh, and I think understandably, uh, voters and, uh, juries probably tend to look more at something that's going to stand alone. Uh, and also a sequel doesn't have the sort of fresh impact that the first book in a series or a trilogy does. And that all makes perfect sense. Yeah, I th- I mean I think that, that makes sense. And it doesn't even I mean it doesn't who doesn't matter. No, it doesn't matter. Yeah, you won I, 8,000 I awards already. Like you uh, yeah. got awards from Alpha Centauri, like all of that good stuff. You're good. Yeah, I yeah, I'm I'm feeling like very little anxiety about it. every now and then uh <laughs> there's a there's actually a website that is handicapping the Hugos and the Nebulas for 2015 like already. What? Uh <laughs> I so What does that mean? Well, they're they're predicting who they think will be on the ballot and possibly who might have the best chances of winning for the Hugos next year. And the calendar year isn't even over. Now, my attitude towards that is, you know what? It's not hurting anybody and you're having a good time. So go for it, you know. Uh, but I, I'm sort of bemused looking at it. Uh, but there there are folks doing that uh, and say, well, you know, a second book, not so much. I'm like, you know... I, I I can't really get excited about it. When when people were talking about, oh, Ancillary Justice might be nominated, I was like, really? Really? Oh, my gosh. Really? That would be so amazing. And now this time I'm like, yeah, if it doesn't, if it does, it's not a big deal. Of course, I mean, if it were nominated, I would probably then die. But um... <laughs> <laughs> Well, I can first. think of a few awards that it's a shoe in for. Um, there's the Sense and Sensibility in Space Award, yes, the right. Most Tea in a Space Opera Award. Uh, I don't know. She, she, I, she, she might be up against Elliot de Bardard for that one. <laughs> oh, <a> stiff competition. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, who knows? Who knows what will happen? And right? then, of yeah. course, next uh, time you'll be up for the Alien Burger Award. No, that that one's a very prestigious award. It's very difficult to get. Mostly French people get that one. Some people say it doesn't even exist. They're That's wrong. true, but they're wrong. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, so shall we, we, should close shall this we wrap we go this down up? that hole again? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's, close, let's close this. Thank you very much, Anne, for coming back to our silly podcast to talk about your awesome work. Thank you for having me. It was a great time. Thank Absolutely. You. Thank you, Sean. Oh, you're taking over now. Okay. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Julia. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Thanks for hosting this. And stay frosty. Stay frosty. <laughs> and on that note, awkward ending and scene. If you would like to send us hate mail on this episode or any other topics we've covered, you can do so in a number of ways. You can send us an email. Skiffyandfanty at gmail.com. You can send us a tweet. At Skiffyandfanty. Leave a comment on the blog. Skiffyandfanty.com. Go to Google Plus. Shawnee Jen. And or Facebook. The Skiffy and Fanty Show. Our intro music comes from Time Flux by Revolution Void. You can check them out at freemusicarchive.org. Afraid to face death. I fart in your general direction. France, certain planet. The force will be with you. Always. End of line. <laughs>